Part One, Chapter Four, Part One of the Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part One of Chapter Four, The Luncheon. One. George, having had breakfast in bed, opened his door for the second time that morning, and duly found on the mat the can of hot water covered with a bit of old blanket and the can of cold water which comprised the material for his bath. There was no sound in the house. The new spouse might be upstairs, or she might be downstairs, he could not tell, but the cans proved that she was imminent and regardful. Indeed, she never forgot anything. And George's second state at number eight was physically even better than his first. In the transition through autumn from summer to winter, a transition which, according to the experience of tens of thousands of London lodgers, is capable of turning comparative comfort into absolute discomfort, Mrs. Hame had behaved with benevolence and ingenuity. For example, the bedroom fire, laid overnight, was now burning up well from the mere touch of the lodger's own match. Such things are apt to count, and they counted with George. As for Mr. Hame, George knew that he was still in bed, because, since his marriage, Mr. Hame had made a practice of staying in bed on Sunday mornings. The scheme was his wife's. She regarded it as his duty to himself to exercise this grand male privilege of staying in bed. To do so gave him majesty, magnificence, and was a sign of authority. A copy of The Referee, fresh as fruit new-dropped from the bough, lay in the hall at the front door. Mr. Hame had read The Referee since The Referee was. He began his perusal with the feature known as Mustard and Cress, which not only amused him greatly, but convinced him that his own ideas on affairs were really very sagacious. His chief and most serious admiration, however, was kept for our handbook. It's my Bible, he had once remarked, and I'm not ashamed to say it, and there are scores and scores of men who'd say the same. Church bells could not be heard at number eight. The referee, lying in the hall, was the gracious sign of Sabbath morning. Presently, Mrs. Hayne would carry it upstairs, respectfully. For her, it was simply and unanalyzably the referee. She did not dream of looking into it. Mr. Hayne did not expect her to look into it. Her mission was to solace and to charm, his alone to supply the intellectual basis upon which their existence reposed. George's nose caught the ascending beautiful odour of bacon. He picked up his cans and disappeared. When he was dressed, he brought forward the grindstone to the fire and conscientiously put his nose to it, without even lighting a cigarette. It had been agreed between himself and Marguerite that there should be no more cigarettes until after lunch. It had also been agreed that he should put his nose to the grindstone that Sunday morning, and that she should do the same away in Manresa Road. George's grindstone happened to be Mears and Grosky's the soil in relation to health. He was preparing for his final examination. In addition to the vast imperial subject of design, the final comprised four other subjects, construction, hygiene, properties and uses of building materials, and ordinary practice of architecture. George was now busy with one branch of the second of these subjects. Perhaps he was not following precisely the order of tactics prescribed by the most wily tacticians, for, as usual, he had his own ideas, and they were arbitrary. But he was veritably and visibly engaged in the slow but exciting process of becoming a great architect. And he knew and felt that he was. 
and the disordered bed, and that untransparent bath-water, and the soap-tin by the side of the bath, and the breakfast-tray on a chair, were as much a part of the inspiring spectacle as himself, tense, and especially dandiacal, in the midst. Nevertheless, appearances deceived. On the table were the thirteen folio and quarto glorious illustrated volumes of Ongania's Basilica di San Marco, which Mr. Enright had obtained for him on loan, and which had come down to number eight in a big box by Carter Patterson Van. And while George sat quite still, with his eyes and his volition centred fiercely on Mears and Crosskey, his brain would keep making excursions across the room to the church of St. Mark at Venice. He brought it back again and again with a jerk, but he could not retain it in place. The minutes passed, the quarters passed, until an hour and a half had gone. Then he closed Mears and Crosskey. He had sworn to study Mears and Crosskey for an hour and a half. He had fought hard to do so, and nobody could say that he had not done so. He was aware, however, that the fight had not been wholly successful. He had not won it. On the other hand, neither had he lost it. Honour was saved, and he could still sincerely assert that in regard to the final examination he had got time fiercely by the forelock. He rose and strolled over to the Basilica di San Marco and opened one or two of those formidable and enchanting volumes. Then he produced a cigarette and struck a match, and he was about to light the cigarette when, squinting down at it, he suddenly wondered, Now how the deuce did that cigarette come into my mouth? He replaced the cigarette in his case, and in a moment he had left the house. He was invited to Mrs. John Orgreave's new abode at Bedford Park for lunch. In the early part of the year, Mrs. John had inherited money, again, and the result had been an increase in the spaciousness of her existence. George had not expected to see the new house, for he had determined to have nothing more to do with Mrs. John. He was, it is to be feared, rather touchy. He and Mrs. John had not openly quarrelled, but in their hearts they had quarrelled. George had for some time objected to her attitude towards him as a boarder. She would hint that, as she assuredly had no need of boarders, she was conferring a favour on him by boarding him. It was, of course, true, but George considered that her references to the fact were offensive. He did not understand and make allowances for Adela. Moreover, he thought that a woman who had been through the divorce court ought to be modest in demeanour towards people who had not been through the divorce court. Further, Adela resented his frequent lateness for meals. And, she had said with an uncompromising glance, I hope you'll turn over a new leaf when we get into the new house. And he had replied with an uncompromising glance, Perhaps I shan't get into the new house. Nothing else. But that ended it. After that, both felt that mutual detestation had set in. John Orgreave was not implicated in the discreet rupture. Possibly he knew of it, possibly he didn't. He was not one to look for trouble, and he accepted the theory that it was part of George's vital scheme to inhabit Chelsea. And then Adela, all fluffiness and winsomeness, had called in the previous week at Brussels Square and behaved like a woman whose sole aim in life is to please and cosset men of genius. I shall be dreadfully hurt if you don't come to one of my Sunday lunches, George, she had said, and also, we miss you, you know, and had put her head on one side. Marguerite had thoroughly approved his acceptance of the invitation. She thought that he ought to accept. He had promised, as she had an urgent desire to do, not to arrive at the studio before 8pm, and he had received a note from her that morning, 
to insist on the hour. 2. The roads were covered with a very even, very thin coating of mud. It was as though a corps of highly skilled house painters had laid on the mud and just vanished. The pavements had a kind of yellowish-brown varnish. Each of the few trees that could be seen, and there were a few, carried about six surviving leaves. The sky was of a blue-black, with golden rents and gleams that travelled steadily eastwards. Except for the man with newspapers at the corner of Alexander Grove, scarcely a sign of life showed along the vistas of Fulham Road. But the clock of the jewellers was alive and bearing the usual false witness. From the upper open galleries of the workhouse, one or two old men and old women in uniform looked down indifferently on the free world which they had left for ever. Then an omnibus appeared faintly advancing from the beautiful grey distance of the straight and endless street. George crossed the road on his way towards Redcliffe Gardens and Earl's Court. He was very smart, indeed smarter than ever, having produced in himself quite naturally and easily a fair imitation of the elegant figures which, upon his visits to the restaurant building in Piccadilly, he had observed airing themselves round about Bond Street. His hair was smooth like polished marble, his hat and stick were at the right angle, his overcoat was new, and it indicated the locality of his waist. The spots of colour in his attire complied with the operative decrees. His young face had in it nothing that obviously separated him from the average youth of his clothes. Nobody would have said of him, at a glance, that he might be a particularly serious individual, and most people would have at once classed him as a callow, pleasure-seeking person in the act of seeking pleasure. Nevertheless, he was at that moment particularly serious, and his seriousness was growing. His secret engagement had affected him, in part directly, and in part by the intensification of ambitious endeavour which had resulted from contact with that fount of seriousness, Marguerite. Although still entirely dependent, even to cigarette money, upon the benevolence of a couple of old individuals a hundred and fifty miles off, he reckoned that he was advancing in the world. The intermediate examination was passed, and already he felt that he had come to grips with the final, and would emerge victorious. He felt too that his general knowledge and the force and variety of his ideas were increasing. At times, when he and Marguerite talked, he was convinced that both of them had achieved absolute knowledge, and that their criticisms of the world were, and would always be, unanswerable. After the final, he hoped, his uncle would buy him a share in the Lucas and Enright practice. In due season, his engagement would be revealed, and all would be immensely impressed by his self-restraint and his good taste, and the marriage would occur, and he would be a London architect, an established man, at the mature age of, say, twenty-two. No cloud would have obscured the inward radiance caused by the lovely image of Marguerite, and by his confidence in himself, had it not been for those criticisms of the world. He had moods of being rather gravely concerned as to the world, and as to London. He was recovering from the first great attack of London. He saw faults in London. He was capable of being disturbed by, for example, the ugliness and the inefficiency of London. He even thought that something ought to be done about it. Upon this Sunday morning, fresh from visions of Venice, and rendered a little complacent by the grim execution of the morning's programme of work, he was positively pained by the aspect of Redcliffe Gardens. The Redcliffe Arms public house, locked and dead, which was the daily paradise of hundreds of human beings, and had given balm and illusion to whole generations, 
seemed simply horrible to him in its Sunday morning coma. The large and stuffy unsightliness of it could not be borne. However, the glimpse of a barmaid at an upper window interested him pleasantly for a moment. And the Redcliffe Arms was the true gate to the stucco and areas of Redcliffe Gardens. He looked down into the areas and saw therein the furtive existence of squalor behind barred windows. All the obscene apparatus of London life was there, and, as he raised his eyes to the drawing-room and bedroom stories, he found no relief. His eyes could discover nothing that was not mean, ugly, frowsy, and unimaginative. He pictured the heavy, gloomy, lethargic life within, the slatternly servants pottering about the bases of the sooty buildings sickened and saddened him. A solitary earl's court omnibus that lumbered past with its sinister, sparse cargo seemed to be a spectacle absolutely tragic. He did not know why. The few wayfarers were obviously prim and smug. No joy, no elegance anywhere. Only, at intervals, a feeling that mysterious and repulsive wealth was hiding itself like an ogre in the eternal twilight of fastnesses beyond the stuccoed walls and the grimy curtains. The city worked six days in order to be precisely this on the seventh. Truly it was very similar to the five towns, and in essentials not a bit better. A sociological discovery which startled him. He wanted to destroy Redcliffe Gardens, and to design it afresh and rebuild it under the inspiration of St Mark's and of the principles of hygiene as taught for the final examination. He had grandiose ideas for a new design. As for Redley Square, he could do marvels with its spaces. He arrived too soon at Earl's Court Station, and he forgotten that the Underground Railway had a treaty with the Church of England and all the non-conformist churches not to run trains while the city, represented by possibly two percent of its numbers, was at divine worship. He walked to and fro along the platforms in the vast, echoing cavern, peopled with wandering lost souls, and at last a train came in from the void, and it had the air of a miracle, because nobody believed that any train ever would come in. And at last the Turnham Green train came in, and George got into a smoking compartment, and Mr Enright was in the compartment. Mr Enright also was going to the Orgreave luncheon. He was in what the office called one of his moods. The other occupants of the compartment had a stiff and self-conscious air. Some apparently were proud of being abroad on Sunday morning. Some apparently were ashamed. Mr Enright's demeanour was as free and natural as that of a child. His lined and drawn face showed worry and self-absorption in the frankest manner. He began at once to explain how badly he had slept. Indeed, he asserted that he had not slept at all and he complained with extreme acerbity of the renewal of his catarrh. Constant secretion, constant secretion, was the phrase he used to describe the chief symptom. Then, by a forced transition, he turned to the profession of architecture, and restated his celebrated theory that it was the Cinderella of professions. The firm had quite recently obtained a very important job in a manufacturing quarter of London, without having to compete for it. But Mr Enright's great leading ideas never fluctuated with the fluctuation of facts. If the multiplicity of his lucrative jobs had been such as to compel him to run round from one to another on a piebald pony in the style of Sir Hugh Corver, his view of the profession would not have altered. He spoke with terrible sarcasm apropos of a rumour current in architectural circles 
that a provincial city intended soon to invite competitive designs for a building of really enormous proportions, and took oath that in no case should his firm enter for the competition. In short, his condition was markedly pessimistic. George loved him and was bound to humour him, and in order to respond sympathetically to Enright's pessimism, he attempted to describe his sensations concerning the London Sunday, and in particular the Sunday morning aspect of Earl's Court streets. He animadverted with virulence and brought forward his new startling discovery that London was in truth as provincial as the provinces. Well, I don't think it is, said Enright, instantly becoming a judicial truth-seeker. Why don't you? Simply because it's bigger, so much bigger. That's the principal difference, and you'll never get over it. You must appreciate size. An elephant is a noble animal, but it wouldn't be if it was only as big as a fly. London's an elephant, and forget it not. It's frightfully ugly, most of it, anyhow, and especially on Sunday morning, George persisted. Is it? I wonder whether it is now. The architecture's ugly. But what's architecture? Architecture isn't everything. If you can go up and down London and see nothing but architecture, you'll never be an A1 architect. He spoke in a low, kindly and reasonable tone. I like London on Sunday mornings. In fact, it's marvellous. You say it's untidy and all that, slatternly and so on. Well, so it ought to be when it gets up late. Jolly bad sign if it wasn't. And that's part of it. Why, dash it, look at a bedroom when you trail about getting up. Look how you leave it. The existence of a big city while it's waking up. Lethargy business, a sort of shamelessness. It's like a great animal. I think it's marvellous, and I always have thought so. George would not openly agree, but his mind was illuminated with a new light and in his mind he agreed, very admiringly. The train stopped. People got out, and the two were alone in the compartment. "'I thought all was over between you and Adela,' said Mr. Enright, confidentially and quizzically. George blushed a little. "'Oh, no! I don't know what I'm going to her lunch for, I'm sure. I suppose I have to go.' "'I have too,' said George. "'Well, she won't do you any good, you know. I was glad when you left there.' George looked worldly. Rum sort, isn't she? I'll tell you what she is now. You remember Aida at the Parish Opera? The procession in the second act where you lost your head and said it was the finest music ever written? And those girls in white waving palms in front of the hero. What's his name? There are some women who are born to do that, and nothing else. Thin lips, fixed, idiotic smile. They don't think a bit about what they're doing. They're thinking about themselves all the time. They simply don't care a damn about the hero or about the audience or anything, and they scarcely pretend to. Arrogance isn't the word. It's something more terrific. It's stupendous. Mrs. John's like that. I thought of it as I was coming along here. Is she? said George negligently. Perhaps she is. I never thought of her like that. Turnham Green Station was announced. End of Part 1, Chapter 4, Part 1